Well, let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started in our study. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. Thank you for this place that we can meet in, and, and Lord, thank you for your word that we can have a personal copy of it in our hands to read and to study and to hide it in our heart and mind. And pray now you'd open our hearts to our to the word tonight in, in Judges 12. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're slowly making headway through uh, Judges. And tonight uh, we're going to be looking at a uh, chapter 12, just 15 verses. So it's not going to be a real long study. Some of you are like, thank you. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it'll be, uh, we'll cover the material. And... Um, just be reminded where we're at in in Judges. Um, Judges has been a, a a book that's gone back and forth, back and forth. Uh, Israel disobeys God over and over and over again. They see God's grace, God restores them, and then they rebel again, go back into uh, pagan worship, whatever rebellion, and then uh, they complete this cycle. Uh, God raises up an army against them, and finally they repent, and God. Uh, continues this cycle over and over and over again. And it's really a picture of a cycle that happens probably weekly in our own lives, right? I mean, you know, we, we fall into sin, we repent, we go back, and God, why am I back at this place again? But uh, that's just uh, the grace of God uh, toward us, and so in that we can rejoice. But I want to read the chapter for us, and then we'll just kind of uh, go over uh, the outline together. Uh, in J- Judges chapter 12, it talks about uh, Japheth's conflict with Ephraim. He just uh, finished uh, basically um, defeating the Ammonites. And you remember he made an uh, uncalled for vow that if God gives him the victory when he gets home, whatever comes out of his house first, <laughs> he will sacrifice the Lord. And there's different versions on this, but um, as far as people's interpretation of it, um, but his daughter came out, his only daughter, his virgin daughter of the house. And so some believe that he sent her away to the temple to serve the Lord for the rest of her life in her virginity. Uh, other theologians, well-known theologians, believe that he actually sacrificed his daughter. And you say, well, why would he do that if he was, that's a pagan practice, it doesn't seem right. But, you know, you have to remember that Japheth wasn't the height of spirituality either. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, arguments that... Um, say that he may have actually done that. Um, in, in John MacArthur's study Bible, he has this, as far as he, he presents both arguments, but as far as the, the idea that she actually, he actually sacrificed his daughter, he says, on the other hand, since he was beyond the Jordan, far from the tabernacle, a hypocrite in religious devotion, familiar with human sacrifice among other nations, Influenced by such superstition and wanting victor- victory badly, he likely meant a burnt offering. And so whether he did that or not, we're not told, uh, per se. So um, all that comes to this chapter. And uh, they've defeated him, and uh, he's done whatever he's done with his daughter. And so chapter 12, verse 1, opens up, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and do not call us to go with you? So there's a tinge of jealousy here on their part. 
Uh, we will burn your house over you with fire. That's a pretty crazy thing to say to a mighty warrior, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of an interesting comment. Uh, and remember, Japheth is what? He's a warrior. He's a man of war. Um, and Japheth said to them, well, he tries to reason with them. He says, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. So it's not that he didn't ask them for help. They refused it. Verse 3, and when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now, remember, he's just, if he did just sacrifice his daughter, okay, uh, you, you got the state of mind here for Japheth is probably not too good. Either way, whether he had to send her away or he actually sacrificed her, he's probably not in a really, really good state of mind. Uh, And so he asked the question, why did you do this? In verse 4, then Japheth gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. So this is Israel fighting Israel, basically. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites uh, captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they gave him a quiz. Verse 6, they said to him, then say Shibboleth, and he said, Sibboleth. So apparently there was a dialect here, an accent, whatever. They couldn't pronounce the, the SHs. And they knew that. And so Jephthah, being a wise man, came up with this plan. And this is how they figured out who was who. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of Jordan. At that time... Look at this number, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. So you've got to wonder, I mean, that's why I'm saying Japheth probably wasn't in his right mind here. He <laughs> kind of went nuts. Verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then uh, Japheth died, the, Gile- the Gileadite died, and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, and then we're introduced to three more judges, after him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. Obviously, he had multiple wives, um, which was a common practice back then. It wasn't approved by God, but um, that's what they did. And he gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. So he had all this mixed marriages going on. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After Ibzan, we had Elon, the Zeb- Zeblonite. And uh, he judged Israel and he judged it 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried in Hajalon, in the land of Zebulon. And then verse 13, and after him, the fourth judge here, is Abdon, 
the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, uh, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. By the way, they rode on 70 donkeys. So they each had their own uh, donkey, which was a means of transportation back then. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. So we see here this, this situation where we're presented right off the top with, throughout this chapter with four individual judges. And they're, they're completely different, it seems, in their personalities. And it, just to go over them, uh, you know, you have uh, the end of, 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 of Japheth's life here. Uh, his, his life comes to an end. But then it gives us three more judges that we're to consider here. And it gives us really four different um, personalities or different kinds of leadership style. Uh, and some of them we don't know a whole lot about. But the first one, Jephthah there, you know, he became almost like a tyrant. You can just kind of pick it up in his, the way he's dealing with people. Uh, he was over-concerned, you might say, with control. And um, his, his tyranny began with his resisting a, a domineering spirit among these Ephraimites. And when they, they called themselves to arms and they crossed over and they kind of had this face-off with, with Jephthah, uh, it just seems like um, it was the beginning of the end uh, for the Ephraimites and for, Je- for Jephthah at this point. Uh, and they were furious at him. And if you remember the whole story, he was the son of a harlot. So he was never accepted into uh, the clan. And they sent him off and, and all these things. And he had such a great victory against uh, the Ammonites and he did it without even consulting this, this group of people. And they're all supposed to be on the same team. You know, uh, I mean, he indicates that he in, invited them, but, you know, to what degree, whatever. And so they just thought, you know what? You're not going to get away with this. You're not a one-man show here. We're going to take you out. And so they began to march northward, determined to exterminate Jephthah and his family. And... Uh, he would just not put up with it at this point. Um, he says, I gave you an invitation, but at that time you refused. Now you complain. And, uh, you know, his mind is, hey, I've actually risked my life in battle for you people. This is how you repay me. And so he's, he's determined to carry through the victory to a savage end. And uh, his team, his warriors with him, basically defeat these warriors from Ephraim. And uh, they stand guard over the, the, the river crossings. They were on the, the border of a river there to catch any Ephraimites who wanted to go back uh, to their homeland. Because remember, back then it wasn't, you know, you didn't capture the enemy and rehabilitate them. You killed them. And you killed their king. And you did it in such fashion that no one would ever come against you or your country again. And so it was a very violent kind of extreme measure, but that's how things went back then. Um, 
They overwhelm them with force and humiliate them to the degree that they'll never rise up again. And sometimes they wipe them out completely. And we've seen that throughout the, the Old Testament. But, you know, here they caught 42,000 of these guys trying to get back. So you can imagine how many, you know, this was not a small battle by any means. But, and the way that they caught them was kind of ingenious, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But unfortunately, Jephthah does not have a happy ending. Um, he, he went, some believe he went far too far punishing these people, wiping, wiping them out of existence as much as he could. And so that was uh, Jephthah. The second guy, Ibzan, the guy that took over after Jephthah died, you know, you would kind of call him almost a multi-tribalist. He was concerned with national unity, so it was like anything goes. He didn't care. Um, you can see that in his own family. He got them to practice inter-clan marriage, which was kind of forbidden. Uh, you didn't do this normally. He was, he was convinced that the multi-tribal marriage was the answer to Israel's need. You can see that by what it says there in verses 8, eight to 10. Um, that he, he basically had all kinds of folks. And so they, they had this um, mentality that just, hey, we're just going to let everybody come together. And, um, you know, he thought uh, he saw the problem and he tried to do what he could about it. Um, and he persuaded even his own family to forget about the idea of, of staying with their own people you know, it's okay, encouraged wider development. You see this even in modern-day culture a lot of times, in modern-day governments. You know, you have different leaders with different, completely polar opposite leadership styles and philosophies and everything. And so it was no different here. And um, so he, he was very um, kind of just open in his approach to, to everything. Multi-tribalist. Then you had Elon, who was more of a traditionalist. Uh, he was concerned with keeping things the way they had been for a long time. Elon is known only for basically three things: living, dying, and getting buried. That's all. That's all we know about him. Um, that's the two verses there, eleven and twelve. It tells us nothing more about this guy. And one wonders why a leader of Israel should be mentioned at all if he's only known for living, dying, and being buried. Uh, he was a leader of Israel, so the writer felt, I guess maybe he's got to be mentioned. But nothing in his story is telling of what he did or anything. Um, but he did serve for, seven year, or for uh, ten years. And maybe that was why he didn't do anything. I don't know. You know, uh, you know, there are some people whose temperament is such that they want to just keep things going as they are. There's no change and everything's fine. Don't worry about it. And uh, their their weakness is really their passivity, passivity. And, and they don't want to make any waves at all. So they're very passive about everything. And when their life is all over, when they've lived and when they've had a title as leader, uh, Nothing much has changed. And we see that here. We see it in our modern day government. We see it everywhere, all the way, all around us. And uh, they get an honorable burial at the end, but no one ever looks back and saying, wow, that guy just did incredible. So that's, that's 
the third guy, the last guy, uh, Abdon, he was more of a communicator, you might say. He served for eight years. Uh, he was concerned with keeping everyone well informed throughout the land. He was famous for having sons and grandsons who rode on donkeys throughout the land. And uh, it's not as odd as it might seem. He, what he, was, was he doing here as a leader? A lot of theologians believe that he mobilized his family to travel around the land. It's kind of like a PR thing. You go out there and you see what the people are saying, you know, communication. We want to make sure everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. And people everywhere would get to see his sons and his grandsons traveling around on these donkeys. And it wasn't that he and his family were eager to be uh, powerful and, and rich. Uh, that's, you know, horses were usually more expensive, obviously, than donkeys. And they were used in the area of warfare and battle. Uh, and, and donkeys were a lot cheaper. And so horses were used for war, and donkeys were used for travel and for communication. That's why I said he was obviously a communicator. And uh, the picture is one of a family who got around. They traveled far and wide throughout the community, found out what was going on, com- helped anybody they could, did whatever they did. So this is kind of a summary of these, these judges throughout chapter 12 here. You have four men. And he gives us four glimpses of different kinds of leadership, different kinds of personality. And, um, you know, one became kind of a dictator. Uh, One of them was very opposite, passively letting circumstances dictate to him. Uh, Two of them were very, were were much wiser, watching over the unity of the nation and keeping themselves well informed. Um, And so, you know, when you you stop and and, and think about it, you know, it's a good uh, mix of, of leadership overall. And so when we read through this chapter, though, you notice that you kind of have a civil war here going on. And this is kind of a fight against within the family, you might say. And you wonder what brought about this situation. What, you know, what caused one group of Israelites to begin to slay another group of Israelites? Why would they do this to each other? Uh, and it, it really focuses on the story of, of Jephthah that we, we've looked at up to this point. And so all the way back to Judges 10, we see that Israel's problem is they, they, they continue to do this backsliding routine, this cyclical thing. They turn to worshiping Baal and Asheroth, as well as many other of the pagan gods in, in, in Canaan and Syria. And God punished them by allowing these Ammonites to be raised up. And, um, you know, in this situation, here comes uh, Jephthah. And Jephthah didn't have, you know, what, what you would think is a privileged uh, life. I mean, he was, um, you know, the son of a prostitute, tells us that. And uh, it's not something that they, uh, you know, they, they looked at Jephthah as somebody who was born with like a, a silver spoon, a spoon in his mouth. That's not, that's not what he was, he was known for. But whatever reason, his upbringing turned him into this, this kind of warrior mentality. And so when, it, when they were in trouble before, they kicked him out, actually. And then when they got in trouble, they said, they went and found him and said, hey, if you come back and you help us out, we will make you leader of, of us. And so he thought, all right. Uh, and that's, that's what he did. And so he, he was this son of a prostitute, he had to flee his own homeland. They kicked him out. He ended up coming back because they knew he was a mighty warrior. He defeated uh, their enemies, and they, they made him their leader. 
And so the tribe of Ephraim here is blaming Jephthah. This is part of his vengeance here uh, for not including them in the army of Israel. And they threaten him. They, they make this accusation there in verse 1, and they say, you know what, we're going to burn your house down with you in it and your family. We're going to assassinate you. We're going to kill you. And, and Jephthah here is trying to reason with them, explaining that he invited all of Israel to join them. You know, maybe they didn't get the note or the text or whatever, but, you know, for whatever reason, they felt left out, and they didn't volunteer. And sometimes, you know, people jump to certain conclusions about stuff. And, you know, we're, we, we tend to do that. You know, we overhear a conversation and, you know, um, someone talking about something else completely and we, we assume it's something else. And, you know, and, and maybe that's what happened here. We don't know. But uh, for whatever reason, and I think it had to do with the loss of his daughter, but his mindset was uh, one of anger at this point. And he wasn't going to take any back talk from anybody, especially these these guys who wouldn't even come out and lift a finger to help them before. Because once again, their motivation was, you know, you begin to wonder why didn't they? Why wouldn't they uh, help him? And so when you, when you stop and you think, the motives of these people in Ephraim in verses 1 to 7, it's, first of all, it's, it's kind of clear that their motive is revealed in their refusal for help when needed. They, you know, he reached out to them and they didn't want to help him because they didn't know if he was going to win or not, to be honest. And this has happened before in this book where someone needs help and, well, how do you know we got, you got, you're going to defeat the king? You know, we're not going to go into the king unless you got his head on a platter. Then we'll, you know, they, they want to, after the glory, after the, the, the uh, enemy's defeated, then all of a sudden they want to be on the winning side. And that's very common. And so you can see when the heat's really on, Ephraim suddenly didn't want any invitations to anything. Oh, no, you know, we don't, we, we don't want to hear about you going to battle with anybody. Um, but once they realized that he won, overwhelming, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, why didn't you ask us to come along? You know, it's one of those things. Secondly, their motives are revealed in their reaction to the uh, Gileadites in, in verse 4 there. Just look at how he, he, he talks about them. He talks, he says... you. you you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim. Uh, you know, that's kind of like, um, you know, saying you're illegitimate. That's what they're saying. You're not wanted here. Uh, they didn't belong. They're fugitives. And, you know, uh, now, you know, he's getting this glory and they don't like it. Their jealousy set in. And then third, their motives are revealed in the results of the conflict. Um, the, the Gileadites came up with a plan to find all the Ephraimites who infiltrated their country by having them pronounce a word. And this word, uh, Shibboleth, uh, you know, was very distinct. You had to say it a certain way. And, you know, you read some commentaries and some of these guys go off in all different directions with this. I mean, one commentary I read is, we all have shibboleths in our life. And it gave this whole list of stuff. And I thought, wait a minute, this doesn't even have anything to do with what's going on here. You know, um, and so the word shibboleth itself, uh, basically, um, it's it, it simply uh, just, it, 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 today it has the idea 
it's, it's a modern day, people use it today as well, but it has the idea that it's, it's a test to see what side you're on. It's kind of, um, the, the men of Gilead knew the people of the West could not pronounce this word with a sh- sound. They couldn't say shibboleth. And um, as they had not mixed with the foreigners, as their brothers from the East had. And so every time they saw a soldier, they'd say, where are you from? And they'd ask, and they'd say, okay, say this word. <laughs> and if they mispronounced it, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not telling me the truth. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of different um, uh, theories on all this, but it's, it's interesting that they actually wiped them out using this method. I mean, 42,000 men. That's, that's an incredible defeat. And... Um, you know, here the Ephraimites are since long dead and gone. Uh, but some people would say that there's still Ephraimites around uh, amongst us. You know, uh, sometimes people want to, don't want anybody else to succeed. Have you ever run into somebody like that? They don't want anybody else to have any glory or any success at all unless they're involved in it. And if they're not involved in it, then they don't want to have anything to do with it. And they're also to the point where they, they don't even want you to um, uh, have any success at all. They think that, you know, they're the only ones that can do anything. And so they're constantly just, you know, almost surrounding themselves with a bunch of yes men. And that's not a wise thing to do. And um, so Jephthah wasn't going to take this just lying down. You're not going to mouth off to him and get away with it. And uh, not only were they pushed back into their own territory, but 42,000 of them, of the men, lost their lives. And so it's kind of an ingenious plan. But instead of, I think, seeing ourselves as, as uh, you know, one body of Christ, even within the church, you have people that can't stand it when you know, a certain ministry has a success or whatever, or they'll rejoice when a ministry has a failure. You know, they don't understand the oneness of the body of Christ. And we have to be careful with that because it's, it's very easy to go down that road. And uh, we don't want to end up with a jealousy in our hearts like these Ephraimites said. I think it was D.L. Moody who said someone was criticizing him on his um, evangelistic methods. They were just being very harsh with D.L. Moody, he's a wonderful evangelist, and they didn't like the methods that he was using. And uh, um, he responded to these people by saying, well, on the whole, I think God prefers the way I do it to the way you don't. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that's pretty smart. You know, in other words, they weren't doing a thing. They weren't doing any evangelism, but they're out there criticizing D.L. Moody for his event. And, and sometimes we go down that road, don't we? We, we want, you know, we, we think we have the answer or we think that there's a, there's a, a better way or, or whatever, and unless I'm involved in it, then it can't work. And that's never the case. It's never the case. And so we just need to be kind of reminded, uh, remind ourselves of that. And so you see this rebuke against Jephthah, in verses 1 to 4, and, and you see this confrontation that happens, his, his retaliation in verses 4 to 7. Um, he defeats these people of Ephraim, 
He's, he's triumphant. He gathered all the men of Gilead. He fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so they were, uh, you know, words of war. They were insulting them and they didn't like it, so they just let them have it. So it's important that we realize that, you know, sometimes our words, um, well, words always have meaning, right? I mean, we, we don't just say things to say things. And so here it was drastic. And um, his, his triumph here was overwhelming, as it usually was. Um, but then he comes up with this ingenious way of testing them by, by in verses uh, 5 to 7, about figuring out who's who. And it's just kind of a unique thing that, that God included in his word that said, wow, this is, this is ingenious, that you could come up with a plan this way to really um, help them uh, discern who was who so they're not killing innocent people. But at the same time, they didn't want uh, the enemy to get away and, and continue to cause issues. And then verse 7, it basically tells us that he, he died, he, he served Israel, he judged Israel six years, and then he died and was buried in Gilead. So that's the, the, the ending of this mighty warrior. And when you, you look over the pages of history, and even secular history, you'll find that workers fall, um, but guess what? The work goes on, Right? The work goes on. It's, it's. Uh, I never forget. I was in a, at a shepherd's conference, and they had kind of a mock elders meeting, and and John MacArthur had had a knee surgery, and he almost died, I guess, at a clot or something. I don't know, but uh, it was a question and answer thing after this elders meeting that they were showing how they ran, and somebody stood up and said, "Well, what's the plan if John MacArthur dies?" <laughs> you know, kind of like this plea of desperation. You know, what are you guys going to do? I mean, obviously the whole church, and their implication was the whole church in this fold because, you know, if John MacArthur dies, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And I'll never forget this, the, the time the chairman of the board was this Italian guy. He was a businessman, but he was the chairman of the board, and he stood up, oh, we got that all figured out. It's very easy. And everybody's silent, you know, like, who's the name he's going to say? And he stood right there with a straight face, and he goes, I take over everything. <laughs> nobody responded at all. They just kind of like, whoa, you know, you can hear the gasp in the room. He goes, obviously, I'm joking. He goes, no, we don't have a contingent plan. It's, it's Christ's church. He'll raise somebody up at the time, and, you know, I think we'll be just fine. But sometimes, you know, people have the mentality that, you know what, um, the work won't go on, you know, and that's just not true, you know. Uh, if you've ever worked at a job and, Maybe you enjoy the job and you got let go or something. You're thinking, oh, man, they're going to suffer so much after I leave. But you know why? You hear sometimes even better reports after you leave. And you're like, wow, okay. So God can accomplish and does. He accomplishes his purpose with or without any of us. None of us are irreplaceable. And, uh, you know, what does matter to God is who gains um, the glory who, who receives the glory for a victory? Because the leader that, that wants all the glory for himself, that's a very dangerous place to be in 
And that's almost kind of where, in a weird way, Jephthah ended up. But workers serve and workers fall, and um, the work continues. Um, but sometimes there's a hint of bitterness after the fact. Sometimes people cannot, even though they can't work anymore, you know, it's kind of like when you get fired from a job, you know, you, you leave and you want the company to fail. You say, ah, oh, those guys, dirty rats, they fired me for no reason. I just hope they all fail. And, you know, if you talk to any workers, you try to prejudice the workers against the leadership, whatever. I mean, it's just within all of us, right, that at least that temptation to want to do that because you feel like you were treated unjustly. Well, that's where, um, you know, this, this basically uh, was going with Jephthah. And uh, he died, he was buried. And then you see these, these three other guys that God raises up. It's almost like clockwork. It's like, yeah, okay, buried him, next. You know, it's not, I mean, this isn't an issue with God. Uh, and so I, I just like the, those verses where it introduces these other judges. First, it's Ibzan, and it says there, um, you know, after Jephthah died, after him, Ibzan judged Israel. Uh, and then, you know, after him, Elon judged Israel. And after him, Abdon judged Israel. It's just like a matter of fact with God. And yet, I'm sure at the time of in the nation, at the time in people's lives when things seem distraught or whatever, uh, you know, you have to stop and you have to realize that, you know what, God has a plan. He has a purpose to all these things. Um, and so you really see this inactive criticism bringing the, the tragedy, you might say, at the end of, of Jephthah's life. But then God is faithful. He raises up other leaders. And he proves himself, shows us very clearly that you know, there, are, there are opportunities for divine active faithfulness to bring stability back to a nation. And that's what happened here. Now, these judges weren't perfect by any means. Obviously, the one had multiple wives and everything else. But I think that they did the best they could. And, um, you know, they got, through the, they got through the whole thing. And that's, that was the main, the main thing. Uh, you know, Ibzan becomes Israel's judge for seven years. And he obviously, you know, did something for seven years. And even though he was kind of a, a multi-tribesman, kind of wanted to reach out and, and cross all kind of barriers and everything else, um, the people dealt with it. And Elon, he was more of a traditional from what I've seen, but he judged, you know, uh, Israel for 10 years, but we don't know any, anything about what he did. And it's just, you know, we have to look at that and go, wow, sometimes, you know, there's, there's a lot being done. Sometimes there's not. But all the time, it's God's, it's God's plan. And so, you know, during the 18 years, uh, Amnon had oppressed the people of Gilead, and nobody from Ephraim came to help them at all. And uh, here, Jephthah answered the call, and yet he gets rebuked for not including them in this whole plan. And so sometimes, you know, it can be a um, sticky process that we have to go through. (laughs) 
especially in, in leadership. Sometimes things don't seem as clear cut as we want them to. But, um, you know, after the defeat here of Amnon and after the defeat of Ephraim, uh, the Jews had 31 years of peace and uh, a security under the leadership of Jephthah and the three successors afterwards. So God had a purpose here. Um, you know, you, it's kind of paradoxical in a way when you look at these leaders because here is, is Jephthah. Uh, he's the champion. Um, and he basically has no family, right? His only daughter is gone whether she's dead or whether she's in the temple serving, whatever, she's gone. Um, and then you have Ibzan, who has 30 sons and 30 daughters, and Abdon, who had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. And then next week, we will we'll look into chapter 13, and we see the birth and the rise of, guess who? Samson. Okay. And we'll be spending a couple weeks on Samson. And... This is basically the last judge that God sent to his people. And he was probably the most paradoxical man of all the, all the leaders that Israel had um, because he was really a deliverer. He was a judge. He was a deliverer. But guess what? He couldn't deliver himself. He could not deliver himself. Uh, he was a conqueror um, who couldn't conquer his own desires his own passions um, he was a strong man who didn't know when he was weak and so next week we'll we'll jump into chapter 13 and actually we'll spend several chapters on the life of Samson so you can go ahead and read ahead on that but it's an interesting interesting time in the in the, the history here of, of Israel a lot of transition going on, things like that. But, you know, it's good to see it from this perspective because we know how it pans out, right? We know as Christians, we read the end of the book. You know, a lot of people look at the world and they get all frazzled and um, upset about everything. And it's like, no, God's plan is being carried out. We may not understand it all. We may not um, want to be patient with it all. But, um, you know, God's plan will not be thwarted. And so we just have to be um, faithful to do what God has called us to do, um, where he's called us to do it, and to serve him to the best of our ability in a way that brings him the most honor and the most glory. And if we do that, if we can just do that in our own Christian lives, then we will benefit um, and be part of the plan of God. We don't we don't have to sit on the sidelines like the Ephraimites and whine and complain. The world's filled with people like that. They want to be a spectator. They want to be the Monday morning quarterback and, and all that. And, and that doesn't play good for anybody. But, you know, when you participate, when you're on the team, you have something invested, then you're, you're trying to bring real solutions to the table, not just criticism as, as the Ephraimites did. So that's all I got tonight. So I said it was going to be short, and it was. <laughs>